podcast and it's new to me. I've only uh, done, this is my third. Oh, but you did a Canada Land one. Yeah, that was with my Jane first. Fulpa. Okay, that was your first one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Here I thought you were like a podcast veteran. No, but... no. This is Van Color. My name is Mo Amir, and today on This is Van Color, I am joined by the Canadian Newsmaker of the Year. She is a lawyer, an advocate, and a proud Indigenous Canadian. She was a provincial Crown Prosecutor in Vancouver, the BC Regional Chief of the Assembly of First Nations, and a two-term elected councillor for the Kai Nation. She was the first Indigenous Minister of Justice and Attorney General of Canada, and she is currently the Independent Member of Parliament for Vancouver-Granville. She is Puglas. She is the Honourable Jody Wilson Raybold, Ms. Wilson Raybold, how are you? I'm good. Thank you for thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for thanks for being here. This is if I can be honest, surreal for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I noticed your uh, your your tweet that you sent out when and wishing for guests, and I was among them. So I'm happy dream to uh, guests to dream clarify. Guests. Okay. <laughs> yeah, Glad I'm, to be- I'm not afraid to say it. You know, I'm a big fan, and almost a year ago, on my very first mainstream media hit, I was on Global News CKNW with Linda Steele. And I was singing your praises. So oh. to be sitting here with you, it's it's not only cool, I, I'm just so grateful and I'm so happy to see you. Oh my gosh, I'm I'm happy to be here and I'd love to know what praises you were singing. I'm just, I'm <laughs> oh, we'll get to that. Okay. Don't worry. <laughs> I do want to touch on the SNC Lavalin story. I don't want to get into the nitty gritty details, but I want to ask you questions about it with regards to Canadian political culture. Sure. In August, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was found to have violated ethics laws by the Ethics Commissioner. And then the SNC-Lavalin criminal case was resolved in December. SNC-Lavalin pled guilty to fraud. They're going to have to pay a $280 million fine. And this is when the Prime Minister said something remarkable. He said that he would have done things differently had he known the outcome of the case. And to me, this is startling because Isn't that a bit of an unprincipled stance from the prime minister? It's sort of like saying, well, I wouldn't have cheated on the test if I knew I was going to get an A in the class. (laughs) I I appreciate you bringing that up. And and, uh, that was uh, a comment that was made by the prime minister that uh, I took great notice of also. Mm -hmm. Um, And I suspect others did as well. Um, You know, looking at SNC-Lavalin and the last year, and as you say, culminating in a guilty plea, I was pleased that the justice system, uh, the independence of the prosecutor, um, that the justice system was enabled to do its job, mm-hmm. and it did. Um, and you know, for me, thinking about it that day in December, um, it didn't have to be this way, and right. the last year didn't have to happen. And um, you're not commenting specifically on the prime minister's comments, <laughs> other than to say it would have been nice um, to have um, that reflection um, a year ago. Mm-hmm. So. And you've maintained that you wouldn't do anything differently, despite all the things that happened around this saga. I am comfortable with uh, what 
Um, I did uh, the decisions that I made um, as the attorney general, Mm -hmm. uh, certainly around um, making a decision not to interfere with the decisions of the public prosecutor, Mm -hmm. which is important for our system of justice. and what happened after uh, that story broke in the Globe and Mail, so many things, mm-hmm. a national story, international story in the country's attention, um, I am comfortable with the way that I acted. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't, if I had the opportunity to go back and do anything differently, knowing as I do um, the role of the AG and the importance of upholding the rule of law and the independence of our institutions. Sure. Did you and the Prime Minister effectively have different approaches to governance? During this whole affair, you focused on truth and fairness and upholding the rule of law, and he focused on what he described as protecting Canadian jobs and the economy. So philosophically, was this your principled approach versus his quote-unquote practical approach? I'm... I'm not sure how I can answer that question. I mean, I think that um, the prime minister's approach to governance, um, that he's the one that should answer that question. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I, and I've said this before, talking about jobs and Mm -hmm. the importance of jobs for Canadians is something that everybody um, believes in and and wants to ensure as much as possible that that we create the space for that. Um, So that's not in dispute. Of course, I realize that the importance of that, but um, foundational to making decisions as a government or to um, uh, implementing important public policies mm-hmm. are the fundamental tenets of democracy. I talked about the rule of law and knowing um, our institutions are functioning as they should, mm-hmm. um, that the independence is maintained. So there is certainty um, in our, the institutions of our democracy in the this country. Um, having certainty creates um, an environment for investment, mm-hmm. um, creates jobs because people want to come to this country um, or build businesses within this country, and that creates jobs. So if we undermine the foundations of our democracy, um, in my view, uh, it does so much more damage. And um, as the attorney general, uh, I knew what my role was, and mm-hmm. that was to protect those institutions um, and to essentially protect the prime minister in terms of decisions and offering advice. And he had the opportunity to take that advice or not. Mm-hmm. I know you don't want to comment on the prime minister specifically, but does that sort of tension exist in Ottawa where there are people who are more principle-minded in terms of protecting institutions and the whole structure of a democracy versus actors. They don't necessarily have to be elected officials. They can be people in the party as well. But people who are more concerned about how this will play out in the media or how we will do in a certain province or the relationships we have with donors or powerful people in this country. Is that a tension that exists in Ottawa? And that's a reality. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think that um, there are differences in terms of how people approach relationships, how people approach solving issues and what priorities people place on certain things. Mm -hmm. In a a political world, um, there are... uh, 
and thankfully, I don't think this is as far reaching as um, it could be. Um, I think most members of parliament run uh, to contribute to public dialogue and to advance issues that are important to them. I would hope so. Um, me too, right? <laughs> like you want to have your representative um, do that on yeah. your behalf. And I'm thankful for that. And it's so important for people to get involved. Um, I don't think people enter in, I mean, I guess there are, I don't guess, I know that there are people that run for elected office and think the goal is to get elected. Mm -hmm. Um, I do not ascribe to that view. I think if you run for public office, you're running for a particular reason or to advance an issue. politics what i've experienced in ottawa is that there are people that are pre their preoccupation whether they're an mp um, or work in the prime minister's office or are a political staffer their preoccupation is to get reelected right. and to contextualize decisions around issues in terms of that reelection. Mm-hmm. I've there's um, phrases called red meat issues. My gosh, we're not going to talk touch that red meat issue because that's going to take votes away from us in whatever um, particular area of the country. Yeah, um, I don't think that way, um, and I think that. Um, I hope that most people don't, but Mm -hmm. that reality exists. And um, particularly when you're advanced in terms of a term as a government leading into an election period, um, there is a very conscious awareness of where the votes come from, how people are feeling in a particular province Mm -hmm. or issues that could become those red meat issues that would um, potentially... uh, not allow us to get reelected. So that uh, is um, very real. Mm-hmm. Um, hyperpartisanship is incredibly real. The centralization of power within a political party or in the prime minister's office. Mm-hmm. Um, those are things that um, uh, in Ottawa exists on a daily basis and, and one needs to navigate through mm-hmm. and around sometimes, and it can be debilitating for actually free flow of discussion. Um, having representative democracy, particularly back to constituents, mm-hmm. when, um, and I've said this on the campaign, I said it a lot, when members of parliament become answerable to their leader or to the prime minister versus the prime minister or leader being answerable to their members of parliament and them in turn being responsible um, to their constituents constituents, it's the wrong way around and we need to change it. Yeah. When you're talking about hyperpartisanship and everything revolving around how to communicate issues and policies to the public, I think that's also why a lot of the public tunes out because they can kind of see through it that these are not things to help people. These are things to win elections and everything you're in the middle of your term and you're still thinking about the next election, right? Well, absolutely. And and I mean, that exists now. I mean, mm-hmm. We're in a minority government situation. And I think great things can come from a minority government situation mm-hmm. um, where people actually have to work together and get along. Um, but the preoccupation with your electoral chances in the next election actually suppress real discussions mm-hmm. across party lines about particular issues. And um, it's it's incredibly frustrating the the extent to which that exists. Um, I I sus- I had suspicions about it, but uh, it's very real, and we need to be able to to move away from that as much as as much as we can. What is the lesson of the whole SNC Lavalin affair, in your opinion? Did this change Canadian political culture? Um, I, mean, I think it's uh, an answer to your question is related to what we just talked about in mm-hmm. terms of of politics and hyperpartisanship. Um, 
I I take away several lessons from the last year, which I've described as being incredibly tumultuous. <laughs> it was it was really hard um, for me personally and my family, mm-hmm. um, but I know that everything happens for a reason and I truly believe that I'm in the place where I should be as an independent member of parliament mm-hmm. but I think that and this is was aided by the media and people talking about it for so long Canadians became really engaged yeah. with not particulars of the company or the criminal tr- potential criminal trial but of considerations and discussions around the rule of law, around the institutions, mm-hmm. around the public prosecutor. Yeah. And we're talking about truth and integrity and reflected on me having somebody like for four and a half hours or whatever it was at the Justice Committee <laughs> talking about something that really has never been talked about yeah. uh, in terms of what the dynamics are between the the AG and other ministers and the prime minister. Right. So having that discussion, I think, is something um, that's really important, hasn't gone away. And it, it, re, um, it bolstered my belief in Canadians and that Canadians care about our democracy, mm-hmm. that they want to move away and believe that they're elected representative is there to reflect what the issues the issues that are important to them mm-hmm. and want to and this is like a, a line it seems now but do politics differently but I truly believe <laughs> that we actually can mm-hmm. uh, where people have trust in their elected leaders and that we um, not have a fear of different opinions but that we actually have some form of consensus based discussions or decision making. We're not going to get all the way there, but the diversity of that opinion um, that exists within the House of Commons, within Parliament, is important to make good laws and good policies. Mm -hmm. You mentioned it being a very tumultuous time for you and your family, this whole affair. And I will say this, you know, the political theater was dramatic. The media was frenzied. The opposition parties were opportunistic. The prime minister himself even seemed to be a little uneasy at times. But I felt like you were as cool as a cucumber. It was <laughs> it was pretty badass, if I may say. Like, So from hearing you say that it was a tumultuous time, and understandably so, I'm a little curious, like, what was it like emotionally being front and center of that media storm? Because you came off as very cool-headed, very even-tempered. Um, well, thanks for that. I... Um... I have to go back to the period of time, and this is all on the public record now, in mm-hmm. terms of the four or so months where there were these back and forth discussions and, you know, the, the subject of the ethics commissioner's report. Yeah. Um, I I was really proud to be the Minister of Justice and the Attorney General. I took that job incredibly seriously and mm-hmm. understood the, the nature and the breadth of the responsibility that I held and um, understood the role and the distinctions between those two hats that I wore. Mm-hmm. And um, i very thoughtful in my decisions and um, do not enter into decisions lightly. And you make a ton of decisions. But um, so I was comfortable in the, in the decisions around um, the deferred prosecution agreement around what the director of public prosecutions had presented to me. Um, I 
so I had that confidence in terms of having made um, a decision and um, living with that decision. Yeah. I don't think anyone questions your convictions. I'm just more curious how you felt emotionally. Like, was it sleepless nights? Was it stressing out? I don't know. Like, you, you just came off as so cool. But you were the center of attention in terms of Canadian politics for a good stretch of time. So, I, I mean, the more personal element is what you're getting at. Yeah. Like, I, I I, really do not like talking about myself and emotions, <laughs> but I, I will try That's and express. That's my favorite thing to talk I know, about. I know. <laughs> I, it was hard. Um, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I said this somewhere before, but I went through a very public journey from the front benches um, mm-hmm. as a senior minister of the crown to the far back corner of the House of Commons. Mm-hmm. And it uh, had a significant impact on my family, my mother who lives in my home community, who would see me on the front pages of the paper or on in the Twitter verse mm-hmm. or other places. And she wanted to protect me and felt sure. unable to do that. Um, so it was hard on, on people that I loved. Um, but um, I knew that the discussion that was happening in the press needed I needed to participate in that and mm-hmm. and the hardest thing that I had to do um, was to I, I should remember the exact date but to stand up in the House of Commons and say I want to speak my truth because of all this um, these stories and um, people's perceptions or making stuff up about what the real story was I needed to, to speak up and that was hard um, and having media stand outside my door in Vancouver uh, my condo or run after me or um ask me questions or say things that aren't true. Um, yeah, it's difficult. I I uh, have many, well, not many, I have a, a number of friends and mm-hmm. supports that um, I keep around and I keep close and tell them how I'm feeling. And they've been, they were very and continue to be supportive of me. Mm-hmm. But it's not, uh, it definitely isn't fun being the, um, for some media and some, um, other people being the the uh, point person for all that is bad in the world. It's not good. Right, sure. <laughs> and not even that, but just this point of discussion, this constant point of discussion. Because even though you were the Attorney General of Canada, a very big position in this country, no Attorney General gets covered like that because of what was happening, right? right. So that must... Sure. It's crazy. <laughs> it, it, it's kind of... You have to... Um, somewhat remove yourself from Mm. seeing yourself on the front of the paper in that okay there there I am on the front of the paper so um, did you normalize it? Um, I just tried to separate myself and what I was going through from the media frenzy that existed. I mean, don't get me wrong. I read some of those stories and some of them infuriated me for the creation of stories where there wasn't a story. Um, and then some reporters got it bang on Mm -hmm. and, um, uh, you know, and there was everywhere in between, but it's, uh. Yeah, seeing yourself on the front of the papers. My mom did collect all of the papers, and they're a stack almost as she is, or as high as she is tall. So, yeah. Anyway. She showed up at a little museum or something. Yeah. That'd be cool. <laughs> you did get emotional on election night, though. And I'll be honest, I got emotional Aww. watching the TV, especially because it was a nail-biter as the votes were coming in in Vancouver-Granville between you and Talib and, and Zach. 
And I remember you were up there, you kind of threw away your original written speech. How did it feel taking the stage that night after all that had happened throughout the year? <laughs> well, I I realized afterwards that the first words out of my mouth were holy moly. So I think that was a reflection of how I was feeling. And I, I mean, as I always do, I always am very um, uh, prepared, well prepared. And I wrote a speech and yeah, you're right. I threw it away. I, it what that moment represented for me and um, was getting up on that stage and seeing the hundreds of people that worked on our campaign mm-hmm. um, that worked on our campaign in 2015, but also new people from all political stripes, mm-hmm. backgrounds and beliefs that came together and, and worked incredibly hard to get us there. Um, that flooded into my mind and into my heart and my family was there. And I reflected something along the lines of Vancouver Granville has sent a message to Ottawa. And it's because of all of those people that we were able to do that. Mm-hmm. And it's possible to um, have integrity, that it's possible to speak your truth, um, that when you do what's right, irrespective of what potentially could happen to you for doing that mm-hmm. it's still the right thing to do and people believe in that and um, the message that Vancouver Granville sent is is one of um, engaging in political discussions in a in a different way that um, will actually make better uh, outcomes better laws and better policies so it was, sure. it was a great night yeah I want to ask you one question when you say speaking your truth and people say speaking her truth. I understand what that means, but there's a lot of detractors who say, what does that even mean? There's only the objective truth. Mm -hmm. Can you explain that to those type of detractors? What does that mean when you're saying I'm speaking well, my I, truth? I mean, I get, um, I understand. So I, I speak the truth. What I relayed in four and a half hours and in subsequent submissions at the Justice Committee was the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, when I stood up in the House of Commons and say I want to speak my truth, um, that for me, of course, imparts um facts and mm-hmm. what happened, and and I wanted to do that, but in that realm with the backdrop of who I am Mm. and where I come from and the importance of setting the record straight. Um, And when I say I want to speak my truth is with that backdrop, I'm not sure if that makes sense, but I come from an oral culture. Mm -hmm. And I said this earlier today at this um, forum that I was at, um, if I do not speak the truth, then our culture dies. Mm-hmm. We live in, we have an oral culture and we pass on messages, principles and beliefs and, and ways of being from generation to generation. And um, it was in that context that I said, I want to speak my truth and tell who I am and the worldview that I come from mm-hmm. living in another world. And I think the two are not um, incompatible, um, but what I feel I brought to the role as Minister of Justice and Attorney General was somewhat of a, a different world view. And in my Justice Committee testimony, I sought to contextualize that also and mm-hmm. talking that I came from a long line of matriarchs and speaking my truth and this is who I am and who I always will be. Um, I think that 
more than ever now, um, I came to Ottawa to try and create the space for Indigenous nations to rebuild within a stronger Canada. Mm -hmm. And I realized um, being in government, being at the center of government, that um, government and governing as a country, um, people can learn a lot from the culture that I come from. So I'm not sure if that answers your question, no, but it does. that's the context. I, I think I would agree with you. I think when someone says, I'm speaking my truth, what they're saying is they're putting things into context. The right. objective facts are still the same, but they're buttressing it with their own lived experience effectively. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. I wanted to hear that from you because I've, I've seen that criticism mostly online and I just wanted you to be able to respond to that. Should we not look at responses online? It's probably not a good thing to do. I <laughs> not try, when you're you. I try not to. <laughs> but I'm sure the good far outweighs the, the negative. Yeah. On that topic, though, how fairly do you feel like you were portrayed in 2019 in the media as the newsmaker of the year? <laughs> that that uh, title is, is somewhat uh, remarkable. I mean, I, I, I can understand it um, as we talked about the front pages and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what was your question again? How do you feel you were treated how in the is, media? Was it fairly, fairly. Or how fairly? I think that there are some really thoughtful um, journalist out there Mm -hmm. that jumped into the SNC story uh, and presented it in a very um, intelligent way. Mm -hmm. And I think that there are, and I'm not, I don't want to pick on journalists. I mean, there's people that you could say the same thing of, right? Like people took sides. Um, I think I was treated... um, um, pretty fair. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say that, um, and I knew this from the first question that I got when I came out to answer questions after being shuffled out of being the Minister of Justice yeah. into Veterans Affairs, a role which I really valued, um, where the first question was, so you didn't do a great job as the Minister of Justice. Like <laughs> there, was a, there was a concerted effort yeah. among um, a number of people to try to undermine the work that I did, to mm-hmm. try to cast me as being difficult or to say that I was experiencing things differently. Um, that was r- really unfair. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess I can understand where that came from, um, but is not uh, something that was... It, it kind of pissed me off. So, sure. Um, it's anyway. It's that that aspect of it was unfair, um, simply because I, you know, come from a different worldview, or mm-hmm. that I I look at things differently, or that um, it's very easy to um, marginalize people right. in racial or gendered terms. I think that there um, ways there were elements of that certainly throughout the last year. Yeah. And sticking to the same topic, what I found very interesting was that on the same day that the SNC-Lavalin case was concluded, this media report came out about how you didn't want to move out of your office. And you've explained the situation (laughs) that House administration told you on two occasions that you could stay in your office. And when the story came out, you were actually reviewing a list of offices to move to. And then for me, it was just a weird story because I'm just looking at the timing of that office moving story coinciding with the end of the SNC-Lavalin case. And it smells fishy to me, like 
Yeah. This this was a liberal party smear, right? Well, I, what I was told was that it was a senior liberal source that talked about the office. And I don't mm-hmm. know who that was. I mean, I have my suspicions, but um, it was very coincidental. And um, I mean, the office story, um, people were disappointed when they read that story. And um, I'm glad that I think we've we've moved past that. Uh-huh. And I mean, there is no world where I would, um, you know, flat out refuse to do something at the end of the day that yeah. has to do with geography or space. I mean, there's more important things than that. I mean, the office situation was in the process, as you say, of being worked out. And I'm now in my new office and mm-hmm. I'm happy there. Um, but it, it was completely blown out of proportion sure. and entirely unnecessary. Do you expect smears like that to continue even as you are an independent MP you're not in caucus anymore um, I, I want to like the answer is yes and mm-hmm. I um, I always tell myself not to be surprised about anything anymore but I continuously am sure, I, yeah. I mean I am hopeful that there won't be any of those attacks on me and that the preoccupation will be of people right across the board will be on governing and and working on issues Mm -hmm. that are important. Um, So I hope it's not, but uh, uh, I'm not going to be surprised if if it happens. Yeah. I noticed a trend amongst political commentators mansplaining to you or maybe even just their audience about how the role of an independent MP is quite limited. And repeatedly, your response has been the same. You've embraced your independence. You've stated your priorities. And you say that you've already drafted private members' legislation. You say you're going to work with all parties and independent senators. In constantly having to justify that your role is still substantial, do you almost feel more pressure to prove that real work can be done as an independent MP? Um. Yeah, I feel I feel a responsibility, absolutely, and I, I, I don't know if it's more pressure, mm-hmm. but it is a constant responsibility that I fear feel to uh, achieve um, more and to accomplish and contribute towards accomplishing what the constituents of Vancouver Granville have asked me to do mm-hmm. and to contribute towards, um, but also tackle some of those. I mean, and they're not actually separate and apart um, some of the a lot of the issues are the same accomplish the things that I ran for in the first place mm-hmm. um, there were a lot of people and it continues um, to say well independent can't do anything like you say mansplaining or otherwise um, I don't accept that simply because the way things are are the way things will always be and uh, that we can't be in a place where we can improve upon um, the parliamentary process because there's so many things that we can do to make it better, to mm-hmm. make it more representative, to make it more democratic. Um, and I'm going to continue to speak out. I, I'm the first uh, independent woman to have been elected in our country's history. That means something. And the people that voted for me and all of the people that live in Vancouver Granville, whom I represent, 
to them that means something. Yeah. And I'm not going to let naysayers or people that say, oh, no, it's just the way it is. Like, who is this person? She's so naive. Um, that's not who I am. And I believe that we can actually do things in a different way. And I know from the thousands upon thousands of letters that I've gotten from Canadians and emails and people that see me in the street um, that they believe the same thing. Mm -hmm. And why not embrace that? Um, I'm going to continue to do it. I, um, um, a reporter said to me once that you have a podium and you just need to be very thoughtful and strategic about how you use that podium mm -hmm. in terms of ex like saying things about particular issues. And I'm going to continue to do that and, and uh, um, contribute towards the discussion. And nobody's going to tell me that I can't. I love that. I have goosebumps. <laughs> that was amazing. But I have to ask. Yeah. So in the realm of possibilities in your current term as a member of parliament for Vancouver Granville, would you ever consider crossing the floor to join any political party? I um, I would never cross the floor. Um, this is a promise. 100%. Okay. Um, I, I know who I am. Sure. Um, I was elected as an independent and yeah. I will serve as an independent um, for the entire time of this parliament. Yeah. And I mean, I was a member of the Liberal Party. Mm -hmm. I joined the Liberal Party um, very, like, I. Uh, first time I've ever joined a political party was, I believe it was in 2014 when I decided to run for um, the liberals in the election. Sure. I ascribed to the ideology um, of, you know, values of equality, inclusion and justice. Um, uh, I was kicked out of that part or the caucus at least. And as the confirmed liberal candidate in Vancouver Granville by the prime minister, mm -hmm. um, I think that's wrong for one person to be able to do this, do that. I don't think one person can determine my longevity in politics. And I look at things that happen in life as being lessons. And what happened to me got me to this place where I am an independent. And I think that's really important. Mm -hmm. And um, the people that voted for me, and even if you, they didn't vote for me, um, it's important. And I'm committed to that. What would it take for you to rejoin the Liberal Party of Canada? Say this term is up, there's an upcoming election. And let's say in some hypothetical world, they come to you and they said, Jody come back into the fold. Are you even interested in that possibility? And what would it take? Well, I mean, I never, never say never. Um, it is rejoining the Liberal Party is not something that I've consciously thought about. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's, as you said, it's a hypothetical world. It's a very <laughs> hypothetical world wherein somebody would come back, I think. I'm um, trying to get conditions that need to be met for this to happen. Well, I mean, look, I I don't know what's going to happen mm -hmm. in my political future. I don't see myself as a career member of parliament. Um, uh, who knows? Mm -hmm. um, but I want to be able to, and I would, I'm still hopeful that the prime minister the government will look not only to me, but to other members of parliament, even if they're not in the liberal fold, mm -hmm. other MPs, regardless of political stripe, that have expertise on particular issues and that they will come to those people, including myself, and ask to contribute and, and to assist in achieving certain things. Mm -hmm. um, I hope that's the case. Um, as to joining the, the Liberal Party again, I mean, I... 
I don't know. I, I'm happy where I'm at. And maybe that's the best answer that I can sure. give you about that. I hope I'm not offside in saying this, but I believe that your role, both symbolically and in practice, is that of the Halagasti to this ah. country. And I know that the analogy was drawn between you and Prime Minister Trudeau when you were in that role. But this idea of preparing someone to be a leader, course correcting leadership, given your identity, your independence as an MP, your high profile, do you take on that responsibility to guide Canada when it comes to leadership on reconciliation, the environment, social issues like universal pharmacare in order for Canada to fulfill being the best country it can be? Well, I mean, I, Haligasti, as you say, that is my role in our big house. Mm -hmm. And it's loosely translated from Kwakula means one who corrects the chief's path. I love that you've read that in my book. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, I think that all of us in some way are Haligasti and trying to continue to contribute to discussions and to resolution of issues. Mm -hmm. um, so we all need to embrace that about ourselves and be honest with ourselves about what we're capable of contributing. Yeah. Um, I, I feel, and I reflected this in some speeches that I gave when I was the minister, um, that I played somewhat of that role in the government mm -hmm. and with respect to the prime minister. Um, and I mean, I do in my own culture, certainly, but when it comes to issues like reconciliation, um, indigenous peoples, um, the environment and climate change and social justice issues, they're all fundamentally interconnected. Mm -hmm. And I feel that we... Um, politicians to a great degree compartmentalize issues and if we don't get to a place where we understand that everybody in our community has a role to play which is my teachings mm -hmm. um, and that we need to ensure that the middle class but also those working hard to join the middle class which is the liberal mantra sure. it's not a bad one but we have to make sure that those working hard to join the middle class um, are enabled to play their role that if we don't address climate change in a, a meaningful way and have ambitious targets and understand that indigenous peoples who have lived on this land for millennia uh, understand um, the natural world and how to maintain it mm -hmm. um, then that necessary understanding of interconnectedness is lost. And so yeah. maybe that's something that um, the worldview, and this is kind of what I was saying before, um, the approach to community and to consensus building and to ensuring that everybody can contribute to that discussion, um, that more horizontal approach to governing mm -hmm. that um, when I was in government, we needed more of. Um, maybe that's my role a bit in terms of being a Haligasti, but yeah. then again, I'm no longer in, in cabinet. So the reconciliation of two worldviews is is something that I think um, was was lacking, or at least an understanding of that mm -hmm. by, by people that put me in that position. And not in cabinet, but certainly an independent MP. Like you said, you're willing to work with anyone. You can be a go-between. It seems like there's a lot of 
opportunity there. I think there really is. And it's it's working across party lines. Um, it's doing, I mean, I think that uh, Elizabeth May, she was one person of the Green mm-hmm. Party for many, many years, and she was able to amplify her voice and, Absolutely. and contribute towards discussions. Um, we need bridge builders. We need people that, to guide, as you say, to talk about those issues and know that everybody has something to contribute, even if they're not a member of your political party. Yeah. As we sort of touched on, one of the central themes in your book, From Where I Stand, Rebuilding Indigenous Nations for a Stronger Canada, one of the central themes is about truth. What truths would you want to emphasize to someone who is cynical about politics? I'm specifically thinking of someone who may look at you and go, here's this educated, wildly qualified, principled, thoughtful elected official, turfed by her own peer, just for standing up for fairness and truth. Mm. And yeah, she won her seat back, but the same people that kicked her out, they're still in power. What truths would you tell that person who is cynical about this whole system? Uh, I guess the biggest truth is that we need more people in politics who want to contribute towards discussions and debate and law, creation of laws and policies, um, but more people that have integrity, that mm-hmm. um, speak the truth, even if there's implications for doing it, um, to not be afraid of having open debate and discussion and breaking some down some of those walls that currently exist. Mm-hmm. I mean, the truth is something that uh, um, creates many emotions for people. But yeah. if we do not talk about those things um, that create those emotions or different perspectives with respect to, I don't know, with medical assistance and dying, very real issue right Mm -hmm. now. We have to understand where people are coming from. Um, So the truth is we need people from all different walks of life to put themselves in positions elected positions. The truth is that if um, uh, Parliament makes laws that impact the country mm-hmm. in significant ways, and we need people, even if you're not in the elected position, to participate and to know how important it is. And the only way we're going to change the way that we make those decisions or have it more representative of the diversity of our country mm-hmm. is if people um, get involved and not say, oh, I just I can't stand politics, so I'm going to walk sure. away because you know they're all a bunch of liars or something. <laughs> As the first Indigenous Minister of Justice and Attorney General of Canada, what are you most proud of? What is your legacy in that role? Um, geez. Well, I we worked incredibly hard for the three years, three and a bit years that I was in that role, and. I take every opportunity I can to thank the dedicated people that worked in my minister's office, but the extraordinary public servants that work incredibly hard on these issues, not just for the term of a minister, but lifelong public servants. Um, So I thank them for that. Um, We were able to introduce 14 pieces of legislation when I was the minister, and they Mm -hmm. all passed from one of the most difficult was the first was um, legislating medical assistance in dying um, mm-hmm. to uh, doing criminal justice reforms. Um, but I guess, and I'm proud of those pieces of legislation and mm-hmm. you know, laws change and evolve and we're going to continue to have conversations about all of them. Sure. Um, I am proud of being as open as I could about 
the roles that I had, the the way that um, I made decisions and trying to um, articulate that to Canadians, one around how um, I made decisions with respect to charter uh, charter rights and freedoms mm-hmm. cases in that regard. I published principles um, and steps that I consider in, in terms of charter cases. Um, I am proud to have um, released a guide um, to civil litigation with Indigenous peoples, a directive um, that tried to change and it's still in place, but I'm trying to move away from the adversarial court reality mm-hmm. of um, uh, indigenous issues to take it into a space where we can actually reconcile. That was something that um, I think um, will leave a legacy and continues to, and people are looking at that. So there's mm-hmm. a whole bunch of different things. I loved um, one of the proudest things or the most impactful, I think, um, is the role that um, the minister is able to play in appointing judges um, to the superior courts and and, uh, working uh, with the prime minister's office, the prime minister, to appoint justices to the Supreme Court of Canada. It's extraordinary responsibility Mm -hmm. and uh, impacts the country with uh, people making decisions about our interpretations of laws, etc. Well, I'm so happy about that answer because... I think so many people just associate you with this SNC-Lavalin thing, even though you did so much more mm. before that. So I, I do want to highlight that as we end this interview. And I do just want to say that, you know, I think Canada is very lucky to have you. I think you embody principled leadership. And I think that the disengagement from politics and government from regular people reflects how hard it is to wade through political communications or the theater of political communications at times. But you have proven yourself to be a truth teller, a champion of principles, and someone who I believe restores hope for what is good. And on that note, I admire you. I know a lot of people listening to this admire you. How do people get engaged? How do they follow you and your work? And how do they support you? Well, thank you for those those comments, and I love talking to you on your podcast. And maybe you'll oh, me ha- too. maybe you'll have me back. Um, <laughs> I uh, listen. I I love being uh, engaged as much as possible in our community on these issues. I um, would welcome people connecting with my office. Send me a direct message on Twitter, <laughs> um, or you know, just reach out and send me an email. I literally do. Um, commit to answering every message that people send me mm-hmm. um, but I guess my message is to be involved in your community and and uh, um, don't be shy this is what I'm here for I've, our office is on Broadway so yeah. come by and, and say hi and thank I just want to thank all the people that have reached out that have said kind things or have been constructively critical and engaged in that regard it's really important for MPs to hear from their constituents mm-hmm. good bad or indifferent that's how we will be able to do our job and do it do it well but uh, the awakening of a different kind of politics is something that I I know is going to continue and I'm glad that people are hopeful uh, because of perhaps something that I was able to do mm-hmm. And I do want to make one note. Mm-hmm. Your book, yeah. From Where I Stand, it's philosophical, it's thoughtful, and it's also a very substantive read about the reconciliation process, especially for someone like me who doesn't know a lot about it going into the book. 
It is a collection of speeches over the past 10 years. If anyone is listening and is curious, I would highly recommend picking it up. And originally, I wanted to ask you some questions around the book, but we do have time constraints, and I would not dare jam up your schedule. (laughs) And I also think, and this is more important, I think that the book and the themes of the book warrant a whole episode dedicated to itself. So on the idea of you coming back, here's my idea. Once UNDRIP, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, is officially adopted by the federal government, will you return to the show? Because I would love to talk about that and reconciliation and the themes of your book. So I say yes to that, but maybe I can even come before that because there's a whole bunch of work that that we're doing that uh, we're going to be rolling out in terms of uh, how we actually approach that that day. So I'm happy to come back anytime. Well, I'm going to slip you my cell phone number after this interview. And so you let me know. Excellent. Well, I appreciate it. I, I love uh, your approach to these interviews. And uh, it's really been good to have a conversation. Thank with you. you so much. This was so much fun. Thank you. People, what can I say? I think the podcast just leveled up and raised the bar. All thanks to her. She is, of course, the Independent Member of Parliament for Vancouver Granville. She is Puglas. She is Jody Wilson-Raybould. And I am Mo Amir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace. <laughs>